This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education and excited to be coaching principals now full-time. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to experts from around the world in the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, please contact Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hello, good morning. Good to have you. It is a pleasure to be here, and we are going to have a really interesting and I hope character-filled discussion today (laughs) about uh, some of the online issues for parents and educators and the kind of children we're raising in the world. We are pleased today to have as our guest Professor Tom Harrison from the University of Birmingham in England. He is a reader, HEA Principal Fellow, and National Teaching Fellow. He is Director of Education at the Jubilee Center for Character and Virtues and Program Director for the MA in Character Education Program. 
Tom is also the book editor for the British Journal of Educational Studies, secretary and trustee for the Society for Educational Studies, and secretary and trustee for the Association for Character Education. His special interests include character, cyber wisdom and the internet, character education and virtue ethics, youth social action and citizenship education. Tom researches, publishes, and gives presentations in the UK and internationally in these areas, as well as developing resources and training programs for schools, voluntary sectors, and other organizations. His most recent book is Thrive, How to Cultivate Character So Your Children Can Flourish Online, which was published just a couple of months ago in January, 2021. So welcome, Tom, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me uh, to be a guest today. Just as a little bit of background for our audience, I ran across an article that you published recently on some of the parenting issues for children and reached out to you and you were kind enough to agree to join us. Um, if you would, tell us a little bit about the work that you did with your PhD and, and what it has led to. All of this journey started really with my PhD and it was, it's one of those decisions. In fact, my PhD topic was something different to start with. And then about three or four months in to it, I was just suddenly really noticing early 2010s when smartphones were really becoming a, kind of a, a, a bigger thing. Um, and I started to really notice how much these were affecting children and uh, young people in both positive and not so uh, positive ways. And I just felt if I'm going to spend, uh, you know, four years on a PhD study, I want to study something <laughs> that I'm really interested in is, and it's very topical at this point. Uh, and so I, I, I made the decision, I think, almost uh, overnight to divert my yeah. studies to look at the influence of digital technologies, but specifically internet-based uh, technology, so things like smartphones, laptops, tablets, etc. Look at the influence that on character and what we call virtues. So over the course of my PhD, uh, I looked specifically at the age group of 11 to 14 year olds because they seem to be particularly at that time. The statistics now show that children much younger than that tend to have kind of Internet enabled devices that they're in, they're in charge of. But certainly at that time, that was the age that a lot of children were really beginning to get that independence you know, related to it. So I looked at 11 to 14 year olds and, and I really just wanted to ask a fairly neutral question. I wanted to, as much as it, as it could be, just go what, what's going on in terms of how children and young people use these technologies and how does that impact? I wasn't really interested in screen time. I wasn't particularly overly interested in content, although content was clearly important, but I wanted to know, you know, how it was having an influence on their character. And I looked in particular at the qualities of compassion and honesty because the literature and early kind of pilot studies suggested those were the two virtues that seem to have be, been influenced the most by technologies. And since then, I haven't really looked back. I've, I've stayed on that path, but I've tightened my theory and, and I've looked more at how it can be applied in practice through different sorts of experiential studies and also through a lot of um, kind of research with parents and teachers and children and young people themselves um, to kind of really hone in on the kind of the concept that's at the heart of my current book, Thrive, which is um, the, the human quality that I call cyber wisdom or cyberphrenesis coming from the kind of Greek Aristotelian term, which is about how or I think the quality that's most essential for 
to help our children develop these days, which is to wisdoms about making better decisions, to make the right decision at the right time in the right place in the right amount. And in particularly, given that many children use their technology when no one is watching. So that's where a lot of my educational approach now focuses on of how we can cultivate this quality of what I call cyber wisdom. I, I, I like that, especially that last piece about how we want to help kids make the right choices at the right time in the right places. Uh, and especially recognizing that they're using their devices themselves. And this is something that Fred and I harp on all the time with this is that it doesn't really matter what things you have in place. If your kid can just leave the house and do whatever they want, you've got to have those conversations earlier on. I love how you call it cyber wisdom. What are some of the things where we need to start with that in having these conversations about developing cyber wisdom? Yeah, absolutely, Jeffro. I agree with you. Yeah. Just before I come to that, that question, I just want to show kind of what underpins the idea of cyber wisdom. And I went back to kind of the main kind of moral theories that under that are kind of most prominent in, in philosophy. And a lot of our lives are, are ruled by kind of what's known as kind of deontological philosophy, which is rules, regulations, guidance. And there's clearly a place for that. And, you know, when my daughter first got a smartphone, I had to put some rules in place when she could and when she couldn't use it. And um, I used things like, you know, kind of internet blockers to, to stop her accessing particular content, etc. So rules are clearly a place, but I think they only get you so far. The other well-known moral theory is kind of around utilitarianism or consequentialism, which is when you kind of weigh up two things and then you try and make the decision based on which is the better um, contributor to the utility, which is normally around kind of human happiness uh, in, in its broadest sense, uh, which again is great. I think we should encourage children to kind of weigh up what's the best decision and which one's going to contribute most to to kind of kind of happiness um, but what uh, my research and many others have shown is that children and, and all of us really struggle to understand the consequences of our actions online you know, the sorts of things exactly. that a, a child might want very quickly on a smartphone you know on a, on a social media post they don't realize that it comes back and haunts them many years later the fact that quite often a lot of our communications are misinterpreted uh, or just done very quickly in the moment without thinking through the consequences so what i found in my research and, and other people have discovered this as well that rules are really only can be seen as ground rules because i think as you said there jeffro it's fine for me to have that in the, in the house but my daughter goes off with this internet connector smartphone you know into all sorts of locations where those rules just aren't going to hold so well just look at the problems that governments are having trying to regulate the big tech rules and regulations that really struggle to have real traction or purchase in in this digital world you know that sort of approach is problematic so the third big moral theory the one that i really underpin all of my uh, recent work on is virtue ethics which is actually interestingly the oldest of those um right back to Aristotelian times 2,000 years ago. But I've brought that theory right up to date. Uh, and virtue ethics is basically uh, about the cultivation of character qualities of which um, wisdom, I suppose, is the meta quality, the meta virtue that coordinates all the other ones. We want our kids to be more compassionate, honest, resilient, um, have more gratitude, uh, empathy. Yeah, of course we want those things. But the reality is, it's how they show those qualities in their real life, whether it be online or, or offline. And wisdom or practical wisdom is 
is the enactment of those, you know, making the decision. Because quite often children have to decide online about whether being loyal to a friend or to be honest to their teacher or parents about what's actually going on. So it's it's quite often there's a clash between these qualities that we think are good. So practical wisdom or or as I translated to cyber wisdom is the being able to make those decisions better. You know, Tom, I think that's actually really, really on point, even if it may not be directly in response to what Jethro said. Um, because I think, as, as Jethro said, I might use a different word than harped, honestly, because it seems like we're chiding people. But I will say, harp, harp but I will say if we take the angelic harp, I'll go along with that. Um, so in any case, the, the thing here, Tom, that I think is really fascinating is that you and I got into this at roughly the same time, because my first Cybertraps book was Cybertraps for the Young in 2011. And what I was focusing on was a, a variation on what you're talking about in the sense that I was awakening to the fact that parents were giving children these incredibly powerful devices without necessarily giving them the foundation that they needed to make good, well-considered decisions on how to use them. And the journey that I've gone on is that now a decade later, I'm writing a book that's called The Rise of the Digital Mob, which looks at the impact on our broader society and our politics from these devices and the social media services. So I'd love to hear you address this idea. What, what do we do about a technology and a series of online applications that seem to undercut the idea of empathy, of being thoughtful, of being reasonable in our discourse? Yeah, yeah, it's a big, big question, Fred, and it's also obviously very pertinent to our current um, somewhat divisive times where we seem to have forgotten how to disagree agreeably. As I say, we're quite, you know, we, there's so much kind of um, polarisation and uh, a lot of evidence that suggests that social media and others are uh, contributing uh, to those arguments and, you know, all the stuff around echo chambers, et cetera, et cetera. Clearly, I haven't got the answer. Otherwise, I would be probably not sat here as an academic right now, but being hopefully hired by one of the biggest big tech companies to, to show how they can perhaps save their big tech. Because I think in many ways, this is one of the biggest threats they've got. There's all sorts of threats. Yeah. I mean, if we believe the big tech founders at the beginning, they were obviously hoping that their technology was going to really bring people together, unite people, be a source for solving kind of global issues. And it can be. I mean, without the, the internet for me has been uh, perhaps the unsung hero of the pandemic. It's kept us all entertained. It's kept us all connected. It's meant that we can take our children out of school and keep them safe, but still uh, keep them learning. Uh, the uh, scientists have been able to kind of collaborate at global scale at, at speed to, to address the issues. So, you know, it really can be there. But uh, unfortunately, these technologies uh, really seem to be undermining themselves uh, because they are providing a platform for so much hate speech and a kind of disagree disagreement and all the other things that you were saying there, Frederick. So my approach to this is I think there's a, definitely a role for big tech themselves and there's definitely a role for governments, but I don't follow those approaches in my recent work. I, not because I don't think they're really important, but more because I think we need to look for hope where we can find it right now. And I'm not finding a great deal of hope in big tech and, and uh, government regulators. There seems to be just battles going on. So I find hope in education and I find hope in educating children and young people to think seriously and critically about 
about their own media use. And some of it goes from very simple techniques that I'm trying to engage, work with uh, in schools and we're testing. I talk around around the kind of the power of the pause, just even trying to get children just to wait for a minute or two before they respond to things. You know, the clues in the name of some of these things like Instagram and Snapchat that we're expected to kind of respond instantly without kind of thought and, and sometimes hugely reactionary and, and without kind of maybe thinking around uh, what we're saying and, and how we're responding to other people. So trying to even kind of bring a bit of a slower sense to that but also what we're doing is we've got a four component model of cyber wisdom and we think each of those elements can have some sort of educational uh, activities that can be created to help uh, develop those children and I think that doesn't it's not just on the kind of the civic virtue and and kind of communication stuff I think these uh, work across all of this wisdom piece of which that civic virtue piece is obviously very very important but ultimately the technology should be seen as just hard metal and plastic even though there's lots of amazing things in there that affordances that may make us and, and children more likely to do things but if I don't want to go too far down a determinist model that makes it think just because the technology exists, we're all going to behave in a particular way. I try and resist that and say it's about educating children and young people to make wiser decisions, speak better online, think through their reactions, all the, all the rest of it. Tom, actually, I really like that. Um, I, I too, uh, avoid the deterministic model. I, I think just because a person is handed a smartphone or signs up for a social media app does not mean that they will necessarily say unempathetic or mean or hurtful things online. And as as Jethro has heard me say unto the death, it, it's not the device, it's the behavior of the person using it that we really need to focus on. And so it seems to me what you're arguing for is this idea that, in a sense, we need to reprogram ourselves and, and in particular, if you will, rewire our children to approach the use of these devices from a different slash more virtuous perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I get asked uh, when I'm um, lucky enough to be invited to speak to parents or teachers, and I often get asked, you know, what, what app should we be using to protect our children? And I say the most powerful app is you, yourself. There isn't anything better than that out there. We, sh- we can't um, be kind of farming off these parental uh, and teaching responsibilities to an app and hoping that they'll look after it because um, the um, cultivation of character and virtues is hugely relational uh, and starts with parents and then is anyone else who's kind of involved with uh, helping to develop children and young people is involved including kind of peers but teachers other community uh, people etc so um, yeah that's that's exactly Fred what I'm, I'm, I'm arguing is that we need to reposition the argument to see the opportunities and the risks of technology and acknowledge both um, this stuff isn't going to going to go away so we can't just sit there and wish it goes away I don't think as parents uh, or as teachers we can remain digital immigrants you know well I think we are digital immigrants to some extent if you want to use that language but I think we've got to try and be good digital immigrants you know we've got to move into that world try to understand it better play alongside our children learn alongside our, our children you know about about this world but still bringing with us what most parents think is important since the beginning of time that is to develop you know certain values qualities in in children 
that will make them uh, hopefully live happier and more flourishing lives. That means that you don't necessarily need to know the intricacies of the technology. You just need to know how to have the sorts of conversations with, with your children and relate to them in a way that will help them understand why it's important to you know strive to be kind and compassionate online why it's important to strive to not uh, perpetuate misinformation fake news etc why sometimes you do need to um, bounce back from things and develop kind of resilience and and and, and grit and determination etc so these are the sorts of qualities we've, we we generally think are important it's about applying these in the online context yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And we can outsource a lot of things to technology, but we should not be outsourcing the values and virtues that we want our kids to carry on from their ancestry. And I think that that is such an important way to look at it, that you have to recognize your power as the parent to instill those values in your kids. And Certainly, some kids rebel and go against the values that their parents put in place, but they typically remember them, even if they do rebel against them. And certainly kids are going to to make their own choices as they grow up. But I think there's real power in starting out that path of saying, these are the things that we value and, and want to do and not uh, outsourcing that to technology. Absolutely, yeah. Character development is not a perfect science. If only, you know, if it was, it'd be a different world, wouldn't it? I mean, we all, uh, we're all human. We all make mistakes. We all get things right. We all get things uh, wrong. Teenage years are particularly kind of volatile. And there's a well-known kind of so-called kind of moral dip at that age where a lot of children kind of rebel, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be encouraging our children to both experiment uh, and support them when things don't go so well. My approach to character development or education is uh, anything but indoctrinating. It's not about fixing the kids or telling them how to behave. It's about encouraging children to go out and experiment, you know, kind of play in this world safely, but keep open kind of um, communication, talking through their experiences um, and then we're providing a certain amount of scaffolding, mentoring, but also operating as kind of exemplars ourselves in this in this space to kind of show children and encourage children and work with children um, when things aren't going so well to kind of rethink about all the decisions they've made and what they might do differently next time. And that's how wisdom is developed. It's developed over time, maybe two steps back, one step back uh, forward uh, or the other way around. It's developed through people around us, um, through exemplars, through sometimes through explicit activities. Yes, sometimes you actually need to sit down with children and actually kind of teach them some some content around this these sorts of areas. But it's it's clearly very complex. But I think there's a lot of things that we can do in this space, and we can do more explicitly in this space to make it more likely that children will develop those those qualities. Tom, I uh, was interested to read through the beginning of your book where you talk about the moment when you handed a smartphone to your daughter. And I, I remember myself, you know, how that situation unfolded for me and, and the various boys we have, um, all of whom are older, I suspect, uh, than, than your daughter. So this was farther back. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on the decision-making process that you went through in determining when you felt she was ready and how that's played out for you. Because I think that's really one of the, the main questions parents have is when, when should children 
be given access to these devices? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, Fred. I have to say, uh, and I think I say this at the beginning of the book. I mean, I'd spent kind of by the time my daughter got a phone, I'd spent probably ten years researching this, and. Uh, when I was about to give her a phone, I felt I knew absolutely nothing. I was like, how can I be? Uh, I've spent this long researching this and here I am handing this uh, kind of phone to her and, and some sort of, kind of terror about what's actually going to happen around here. And that was actually uh, my latest book. That was the starting off point because I realised that a lot of my knowledge was very theoretical. It was quite research-based. It was certainly helpful, but actually I didn't know how this was going to play out in someone very close to me's life. It was almost an ethnographic study. I don't think my daughter would be very pleased if I called it that but you know observing her as, as she went through and clearly actually uh, you're always setting yourself up for a fall as a parent to put a book out about this sort of topic because everyone starts watching how your daughter uh, behaves and use the technology uh, and so far thankfully she has uh, responded in all the ways that I'd hoped she would when she got her, her phone I couldn't be more proud of her and actually a lot of my fears kind of went away but coming back to your question I don't think you can set uh, a kind of a definitive age. I do think things change dramatically uh, when you kind of get to that uh, in, in, in England anyway, when children leave primary school up to secondary school. Um, that seems to be the age that most um, children start uh, kind of majority get smartphones. But a lot of children, my son's school, he, you know, even from the age of seven or eight years old, we're getting smartphones and it seems to be younger and younger. I'm not going to be judgmental of other parents about what age they give their smartphone. The one thing I would be highly suggesting if any parent asked me that question was think seriously about whether you it's the right time to give your child such a powerful tool as I say I always say this we used to be worried about where our children were my parents were worried about where I was when I was playing out in the streets now we need to be concerned about what our children are doing when they're on their own in their bedrooms alone because they can be going anywhere doing anything with anyone if there's no restrictions in place for that and it's such a powerful tool so we need to know our children to know can we give them something of that power um, at their age and it's also the same with same with rules it's much harder to kind of put up rules than than, than kind of take them away it's much harder to um, you know kind of take away a phone after it's given I would be suggesting kind of delay until you're absolutely convinced your child is able to do that and then I although I said my models in the book start with rules actually so I'm not dismissing rules and not saying rules don't have a place but when my daughter first got her phone there were rules in place but I call them the ground rules they're the ground foundations that characters built upon and I can take away those rules as she starts to show that she's kind of developed the sorts of qualities that make it more likely that she's kind of communicating and interacting online in a way that is not damaging her own well-being or anyone else's. Really, yeah, I think it's up to parents because they know their children best. But, you know, I'd, I'd be urging caution about giving children these tools too early. They're going to have plenty of time in their life sat in front of a screen. So uh, I wouldn't encourage it anymore. <laughs> Well, and what I appreciate about that, Tom, is that you're talking about recognizing who your kids are, what their strengths and weaknesses are, what their skills and dispositions are, and then making a decision based on them, not on the pressure from peers or from other kids or, or your own adult peers, but actually making a concerned decision about them in particular. So, you know, I have four kids and my four kids are all different from each other and everybody's kids are different from other kids. And so we need to recognize that just because one person 
is doing it or has the ability doesn't mean that everybody else is is ready for that. And for the most part, we're okay with that when our kids are learning how to walk, even though there's still some competition in there. But even that, we don't say, oh, that that kid can do more because they can walk now. We say that kid just learned how to walk sooner than other kids. And so we have to recognize that different kids are going to develop in different ways and be ready for it in other ways. Another thing that you talked about is, is building that up to, you know, scaffolding it with the kind of rules that you have in place. And so, for example, my kids have devices right now, but they are only allowed on them at specific times. They never take them into their bedrooms. In fact, that's one of our rules is that the device belongs out in the open and, and we don't take it places. And so I, I like this idea of, of the ground rules and I'd like to, to get your thoughts on some of the other things that you incorporate into those ground rules that you have. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jeffrey. I'm not going to suggest there isn't a great deal of peer pressure around this and it's hard for parents in this age to try and resist that their children kind of asking for things based on peer pressure because their friends have got technology or their friends are communicating at certain times or using certain apps and certain technologies but parents to some extent have always had to work with their children to try and make or help them make better decisions for when they're ready for for things so it's no different in 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 terms of what's needed to be done it's just obviously the decisions are about different types of types of things but I think you know there is a requirement to sort of resist peer pressure till as you say you know the dispositions and qualities of your own children I'll come on to the rules bit in a minute but I think what is important if you can is to try and see this as a partnership with your your children as best as you possibly can one of the things I prioritize in my book is saying what worked for me quite well was actually talking to my daughter saying, look, I just don't know this world very well. Let's go and explore it together. And I gave her some of the kind of the, the autonomy and the authority to kind of show me through it and talk me through the kind of the apps and the uh, different ways that, you know, that she could be communicating with, with other people. So we saw it more as a, hopefully an open partnership because I've seen, um, and I'll come on to the rules question in a minute, but I've seen when you put too many rules um, go the other way, you know, there's some statistics right now in our, in our country that show, you know, how many children have got so-called burner phones, the sort of things you'd expect criminals to have hidden phones, but they've got phones that they're hiding from their parents because they've got such so restrictive rules that they're finding ways around those rules. Yeah. And there's lots of sneaky little tricks or whatever that I found out that children use in terms of kind of changing time on their phone and they're getting around the content blockers, et cetera. So I think rules need to be there, but I think, again, we've got to be aware that a lot of children are getting around them and finding it easy to get around them, but also that they only get you so far. But what, what else do I do? I mean, we, we have a rule around uh, no phones at uh, dinner table when we're eating, unless the phone is there to contribute to the conversation that's going on. So we do have a little let out cause if we suddenly want to just check something or because it's contributing to that conversation. We set up a charging station in the corridor quite quickly after I started writing the book to, to try and get phones out of the bedroom. I don't overly restrict on kind of at times around screen time. I know that's quite a contentious debate. I'm much more concerned about what the content is than kind of the, the time. Um, I'm not saying Brilliant. that there isn't problems with children being on screen too much. Um, you know, clearly there are gaming addictions and other things going on. So you, you need to watch that. But I'm more concerned about the content. And so one of the things we do coming back to this idea of partnership is that we encourage our children and, and at times enforce them to do things with us. So we'll watch telly together or we'll watch something on YouTube 
group together. So we're actually having a discussion and taking part in the digital activity in a shared space and an open space. So those are the sorts of things that I, I kind of recommend in that chapter in my book around rules. Tom, that's actually really encouraging. It, it lines up really nicely with the idea that I have encouraged parents to uh, basically make children their tech support or, or invite them to be tech teachers so that if their children are using something on a device, it's very powerful for a parent to say, that looks interesting. Would you show me how to use it? And it opens up an opportunity for conversation about how that app should be used, how the device should be used, what their friends are using it for, and so forth. The stuff that you talked about in terms of the little tricks that kids can get around uh, different things, obviously, I'm not sure I'd classify getting a burner phone as a little trick. <laughs> That's a fairly significant step. Yeah, but yeah, that was one of the things that shocked me when I was doing cyber traps for the young. And I think it underscores your fundamental point, right? That That so much of cyber wisdom is about the level of virtue that children bring to their use of devices and their online behavior. And I was struck by one line you had that that character is experiencing a resurgence. And you listed some interesting examples uh, in your introduction. And I guess I'd love to get your thoughts on how you square that generally optimistic point of view with some of the moral examples that are being set for children in society more broadly. You know, obviously it's it's been a difficult three or four years, depending on how you look at it. And and I think children are getting some challenging messages. So how would you approach that? Or or do you think that's a legitimate characterization? Well, there's a slight distinction, I'd say, between kind of character experiencing a resurgence and maybe uh, discourse around character and also the the idea of character education uh, suffering resurgence. So I wouldn't claim that character is all in, in kind of necessarily improving. In fact, I think there's a lot of statistics that suggest that there's more issues around kind of honesty and compassion and then there's perhaps ever been and perhaps some of our exemplars, role models, all different levels have not been in character education. The idea of exemplar theory is incredibly powerful that we often do what those people around us do or or don't do uh, or fail to get away with. I mean, this so. may be one of the reasons why there's more of a focus on character education and the idea of character um, because we're witnessing what's going on right now. But I also think it's partly because we've seen the limitations of some of the other kind of approaches to try and manage ethical issues, such as, as I said, rules. This is across all of the different domains. There was a big backlash against the financial crisis because uh, very few people went to prison, even though a lot of people felt that rules were being broken in that space or the rules just weren't enough to hold so therefore there was a conversation against these people being yeah. dishonest etc but that didn't seem to count for much because the rules they didn't actually break any rules in that sort of space so there's lots of backlash against kind of rule trying to manage everything rules-based approaches and this is why character seems to be suffering a resurgent as well and I think one of the main focuses on reason for character education certainly in our country in the UK is really been suffering getting a good resurgence uh, we've had two ministers Secretaries of State for Education have really prioritised it more. 
is to some extent about the over instrumentalization of the curriculum, the over focus on kind of testing exams, standards, etc., which I'm not saying are not important, but I'm just saying that almost too much focus on them has, has maybe increased the focus on kind of competition, uh, very much narrowed the curriculum in terms of what we think is important and squeezed out a lot of focus on kind of human development, personal development, and the development qualities and tributes that contribute to our own flourishing as well as other people's flourishing in society more broadly. And I would say that a more an emphasis on that element, which will include, I would hope, a big focus on digital because our children's today lives are only going to get more and more tech focused and digital focused, that we should really be kind of emphasizing that, that side of what we think, what I think is a true purpose of education more. So my comments around kind of a focus on, on kind of resurgence of character as discourse and character education as a kind of an approach within schools is, is really around there and I think it's more needed than ever right now to address some of the issues that we're definitely seeing in our world you can't see us but we are nodding our heads <laughs> on this and um yeah very well I, said Jethro <laughs> yeah I I really appreciate it I think that what I like so much about your approach Tom is that it's so personalized for everybody and I would argue that you know it hasn't just been a tough three or four years. Our our character has been devolving for for decades in my mind. I think that that is really an important thing. That what we do in our own homes is constantly being bombarded by other ideas and philosophies that we have no control over. And for us to to just let that happen is is parental malpractice. I don't know. Did I just make up that term? I don't know if you can't have parental malpractice. but <laughs> Well, but it's that... not a legal term, Jethro, but it's certainly a moral <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I just think that it's so, so important for us to really be taking the time to get to know our children, get to know what is interesting to them. And I do want to just remind everybody to think about those things as they're making decisions. And in Fred's example of, of teaching or having kids be your tech support or teachers is, is a good one, but there's so much power in that collaboration and calling it a partnership. I think that's just so good. I've just really enjoyed this conversation. And um, do you have a final question for Tom or Tom, do you have anything final you'd like to say before we sign off here? Well, I'll jump in if you don't mind, Tom. I do have one last question, which I think would wrap this up really beautifully, which is that We've been talking about this educational process for kids, largely from the perspective of parents, but it does seem that schools have a role. And if you could maybe mention a couple of different things that educators can do to help with this development of cyber wisdom, uh, that'd be a great note to close on. Yeah, thanks, Fred, because you've just preluded to the uh, next book I'm working on right now, because I've written something for parents, and now I'm writing for something for um, teachers. And what struck me around this kind of broad area called the digital citizenship curriculum, it's called Different Things in Different Schools, which is one of the problems, but generally about kind of raising digital citizens, and dig certainly over here it's called digital citizenship, is when I started speaking to teachers about how they address these um, issues in schools, it struck me very quickly that they seem to be shooting in the dark while trying to hit a moving target. There was just not a great deal of kind of 
coherent uh, and up-to-date advice about it. And obviously the technologies were changing so quickly as well that so much of digital citizenship seemed to be reactionary, responding to kind of an issue of the day or an issue that had happened in the school quite drop-in, quite siloed. It wasn't an overarching, comprehensive kind of framework around how the school were going to manage both, teach children about opportunities, because it's going to be so essential to their futures and their employment and their careers, as, as well as the risks of technology. So that's what I'm working towards is that framework. And in terms of kind of some nuggets of advice around cultivation cyber wisdom, which is going to be part of the framework, in fact, the heart of the framework. So it will address how schools should run kind of rules in the school place and etc but in terms of cyber wisdom what i've been using a lot within schools is dilemmas often first person dilemmas with children often bring these dilemmas that they face or they know other people have faced in their online lives and they talk through the character implications of them they talk through the decisions they had to make the ethical kind of decisions and we try and make the whole process much more cognitive much more conscious and much more aware and those are the sorts of things you can do in great discursive spaces whether it be citizenship civics kind of personal education professional development and you can get children sitting down and discussing each other's uh, kind of dilemmas and by making them more aware, the hope is that children won't be maybe making such rush or make quite such quick interactions next so they're on, they're on the technology because they they have they've had an experience or chance to think through these sorts of scenarios or, or dilemmas that are faced. So I do I do a lot around there, quite a bit around exemplars online, and narratives and stories. I use them a huge amount as a kind of a character tool, and then reflective learning is getting children to journal or, or kind of reflect on their kind of just maybe over the course of a week how the digital technologies have affected their lives. So lots of strategies like that. I, I could just say right now, if you buy the book, they'll all be in there, but that would just be me dreadfully trying to sell my book. As a writer, we need every moment we can to promote books. Do you have a title for that book yet, Tom? Uh, uh, yeah, the new book, um, uh, provisionally, actually, this is an exclusive, there we are, it's provisionally entitled uh, Future Proof right now, because my aim is to show yeah. how schools, how they can cultivate educational approaches that help children proof them for their futures. Well, you know, it's interesting because that plays uh, rather nicely off of uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock title. So yeah. if we want to be avoiding future shock, then we need future proofing, which yeah, yeah. I think works very well. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, but the current book is called Thrive. Um, that's the one that is out. The other one, yeah. who knows, it will be out one day when I get uh, round to finishing it Oh, off. God, I know <laughs> that feeling. Well, we, we are going to put a link to Thrive in the show notes for this, and we'll be distributing it out to people. And I would encourage folks to pick it up and take a look at it, because I think it's a really valuable approach to these kinds of issues for parents. So uh, thank you for discussing it with us. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Alrighty, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we will talk to our growing collection of interesting and worldwide experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this interview. 
If so, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you with us today and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.